Hello everyone, uh, this is Lee from the future. Uh, I have made the executive decision to release this episode after it having been sitting on my computer for quite a while, because due to real-life events of the university, I have not been able to edit it as thorough as I would like, so it's mostly not cut. There's a few parts where, due to my internet issues, which are, I want to stress, my fault, um, there are a few times when we just like waiting for me to reconnect to Zoom. So uh, beyond that, I hope the audio sounds fine. I, this is also audio only, as you might notice, because of tremendous safety mismatch, which I could not bother to fix. So for the most part, rather than having this sit for my computer on my computer for two months while I'm pretending I'm gonna edit it eventually, I'm going to release it in this format. I hope you enjoy it regardless, and I hope you forgive me, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to Smiley's. Uh, I'm Lee, and today I'm joined by a very special guest, by Mr. Critical Dragon himself. Uh, hello, AP. Hi, how are you doing? I'm uh, quite great, actually. This is uh, an experience, to be sure. Um, AP drops by from the tavern um, oh, a long time ago, right now, like two weeks, three weeks, when yours truly made a uh, video on narrators and how narration impacts how we view certain things, which tied into another bigger point. Uh, and because AP does this kind of thing. Um, here we are. I'm here to consult the expert. I have come to the uh, the Elder's Tower to ask for advice. I, I, I wouldn't describe myself as an expert. I, I, I certainly have some training in this right. area. Yeah. Right. Well, one of the things that you learn very early on is um, there's always someone who knows more. There's always someone who yeah. is smarter. And to call yourself an expert, I think I would probably need about another 30 to 40 years mm -hmm. studying this stuff, because when it comes to narrative, narrative is so extraordinarily complex because it, it operates on so many different levels. There are a lot of different moving parts. And so when we talk about narrators and narration, there, there are all of these different levels that play into it. And sometimes our formulations and our understandings of it a every series is different every book is slightly different but our formulations of it tend to conflate and confuse sometimes everyday meanings of things mm -hmm. with um specific meanings in a literary or narrative context and omniscient is one of those terms that just seems to throw people uh, a curveball right and the other is unreliable mm -hmm. and you know these, these are terms that we know generally everyone knows generally oh well I, I generally know what an omniscient narrator is. i generally know what an unreliable narrator is but as soon as you start applying it very specifically to a text particularly the malazan book of the fallen which erickson very deliberately muddies the waters and plays with these concepts but as soon as you start doing that and you start talking about frame narratives, you start talking about the difference between a homodiegetic and a heterodiegetic narrator, um, different diegetic levels. It, it starts to become a wee bit complex. And then trying to tease all of the things out means that sometimes the, the waters get a little too muddy and we start making misconnections between things. And as soon as you, you do that a couple of times, you end up further and further away from the thing that you should be focusing on because you've you've gone off into this side alley, you find something on the ground and then gone, oh look, squirrel. <clears throat> <laughs> right, right. Um, 
on that note, I admit I am particularly guilty of this um, on a certain manner. Though I also admit that I have been applying these terms a bit too loosely, a bit too liberally. Like, yeah, you know, he's, you know, there's unreliability, there's um, omniscience of the narrative, there's, you know, they toy the narrative. I can do this, I can do that. And I quickly realized when I looked into this that I'm not, it's not that I'm necessarily using the terms wrong or applying them wrong. It's that I do not have a formulaic application of said terms. I'm just like going, mm. like, yeah, well, this, seems, this seems nice. I'll use this. Pluck that from the Wikipedia page. Type into Google. Look into it for about five minutes. Think, yeah, this seems to fit. And then I realize, hang on, this isn't how this works. And um, here we are, where AP directly called me out. Uh, no, no, <laughs> no offense taken, of course. I'm just saying. <laughs> no, no, no. But but the thing, this was not calling you. This is no, 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 no. this is what we we all do. Like we do it all the time because we use we hear the term, we understand the term, and we understand it generally. And so we use it generally. We use these terms informally. Mm -hmm. But when we start applying it in a very specific context, that that is the thing quite often that trips us up. So if we, if we take the term omniscient narrator, you know, everyone knows this, omniscient, right? Oh, they know everything. And we confuse that with the general concept of omniscience. So when you think of some divine being that knows every facet of everything you go that's what omniscience is but omniscient narrators know everything in the story not that they know everything so they can dip they can dip into a character's head and tell you what that character is thinking even though there is no physical way that they could know that and so it is a style of narration so if you think if you were going to tell a story about uh, what happened at the end of julius caesar's life he sees Brutus in front of him, and uh, you write the dialogue. Now, you weren't there. How do you know that's what they said? But the style of narration you're using is, well, if it was just the dialogue, that doesn't necessarily have to be omniscient. Um, but if you dip into Caesar's head, and he, he looked at, my friend Brutus, how could he do this to me? And then you dip into Brutus's head going, I cannot believe I have to do this to my friend. That you've assumed the position of an omniscient narrator. There is no physical way that you could know what Caesar was thinking or what Brutus was thinking. But in telling the story, it serves the story's purpose for you to assume an omniscient position about what these characters are thinking. It's going to add to the drama. Mm -hmm. So the style of narration you use is omniscient. You know everything that is happening in the story that you are telling. But we need to go even further back, which is, the narrator is not the same as author. Yeah. Um, because the author assumes the physical person creates a persona, which is author. The, because the physical person and the author are not exactly the same. They are different because the author is at a certain place in time. The physical person can be at a different place in time. Um, Erickson wrote the Malazan Book of the Fallen, uh, Gardens of the Moon, back in the early 90s, even though it wasn't published until much later. And so when it is published, Erickson is author, but Stephen Erickson, the person, is now 10 years older. He's a different person. So there's actually a difference between the person and the author. Mm -hmm. Then Stephen Erickson, author, uh, author, so Erickson, author, this sort of persona, this moment in time, this, this concept, creates a narrator. And when we talk about narrators, narrators are not always people. It can be a position. So... Even though we say narrator, 
it's being narrated from a certain position. So if you think of a TV show, the TV show is being told from a certain perspective, but there isn't necessarily a voiceover of someone going, and this is what happened next. You know, it's not a narrator in the sense of a person, but where the camera is positioned, what the camera is focusing on is all about narrative perspective and how the story is being narrated to us. So there is a narrative perspective, even though there isn't a person, you still can talk about the narrator. But that's the, the first thing that we often default to is we go narrator is a person because so many of the narratives that we enjoy are someone telling us a story. So that quite often leads to a conflation of author and narrator, mm -hmm. even though those two things are actually very different. Um, and so when you have that narrator, when we talk about this narrative perspective, and we can talk, you know, first person, second person, third person, uh, omniscient through to uh, limited or subjective, depending on how you're going to do it. But with that, we always have to remember it is narrative. It is artificial. Mm -hmm. It is not real. Um, it's not a CCTV camera uh, tracking exactly what happened. It is a frame. And with this, while some authors try to create an impression that this is real, this is really happening, a level of verisimilitude, a level of authenticity, or I obviously I personally dislike the term realism because realism typically doesn't fit with a lot of fantasy, but they're creating the illusion of the real, mm -hmm. but it's still an illusion. It is not real. And the, the author has created a narrative perspective where they have picked and chosen all the different elements. They are, they are choosing what the characters are saying, how they are saying it, where they are saying it. They are choosing what to narrate to us. Mm -hmm. The author is choosing that and the narrator then is going about doing it. But because of that, we get locked into making that analogy in our head that this is the thing that is happening. How does that person know that this? Well, they don't, just in the same way that if you were telling a story about Caesar and Brutus, how do you know that's how it went down? It's conjecture. It's artificial. You have created it. It is fiction. Like, this is what we're talking about here. Fiction. Ultimately, yeah. But it's fiction in a particular style with this element of the illusion of it being real. And that illusionary nature and the tension that we have between it being artifice and artificial, mm -hmm. which all fiction is, and what we need for our suspension of disbelief, what we need for our engagement and, and immersion, where we're trying to believe that it is real, that there's always a tension between those two points. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, no, I mean, I have seen a lot of this, these sides of people either taking the narration either too much at face value or looking too deeply into it. And one question which I always see come up is, well, if I don't know whether or not what I'm seeing is real because the narrator cannot be there and know these things, should I treat it either as fact or as artifice or as fiction? And why does it matter? And um, I think that is a bit of a false equivalency of if I don't know this is true, why should I think otherwise, which we'll get the way things later. But ultimately, it is artifice. Like you said, it's fiction. It's 
not something that you're supposed to take at face value, but also you shouldn't doubt it every step of the way because the narrator couldn't be there and the author is just making things up as he goes along. What are you reading fantasy then for? That's what suspension of disbelief is. You accept that you're being told the story and you are going to take it at face value until it either becomes expedient or asked of you to think otherwise. But until then, just go on trucking and just think, yeah, this is fine. This works. This there is a point to this. I don't know. Of course, I don't know what Caesar said to Brutus because that was 2,000 years ago and then some. But it doesn't matter because this dialogue, these words, this scene, the thoughts in each other character's head are being portrayed in such a manner for some reason. And I should not look any deeper beyond, okay, but how was he there? How does he know? It doesn't matter. The reason beneath why this is like this is more important than if it's like this. I'm glad you're going to And... But, you know, you're right, because when when an author sets up a frame narrative, mm-hmm. um, which obviously Ericsson does with Malazan Book of the Fallen, we can get into a spoiler discussion yeah. shortly, but we'll keep it non-spoilers for now. Um, when you set up a frame narrative, you're creating a conceit. And with that conceit, it part usually it is to create an element of, again, realism, verisimilitudinous, um, depth, authenticity, all of these sorts of things. But... I'll give you an example. Um, Nathaniel Hawthorne wrote The Scarlet Letter, mm-hmm. right? which it, uh, if people study American literature, The Scarlet Letter usually comes up. But he included a sort of foreword to protect himself from potential accusations about him, him being mean and, and writing this book, which didn't reveal uh, the, the people in the greatest possible light. And he was trying to create the the impression that this really happened and that this was a real person, a real story, because that adds weight and depth to the story and impact to the story and increases drama and tension. Because if you believe it really happened, then this is a true story, which has more weight than, oh, well, you just made up all of these characters. So he created a foreword. Um, I think it was called the, the Custom House, which goes at the front of the book, where he says that, you know, he was clearing out these boxes and he found this manuscript. You know, like, really, you found this manuscript, did you? Um, this story that someone had written down and we don't know who. But if you read The Scarlet Letter, there's a section where the young girl Pearl is playing by herself in the woods. Mm-hmm. So who, who noted that down? Who was there to witness that? And you go, well, okay, maybe Pearl is the narrator. Maybe she wrote it all down later on in her life. But we have Dimsdale. There's a section where he's on his own and doing it. You go, well, Pearl can't possibly have known that. And there are all of these moments where it's only one character being present. And, and it belies the notion that this was recorded by someone who investigated all of these things. Because obviously, some of the characters die. And they die before they could have possibly explained any of these things. And that is not a failure in the narration. Mm-hmm. And the, I think this is the thing that trips people up. They go, no one could possibly have known that. Therefore, this is badly constructed. Only if you're trying to look through this very realist lens that the only way that this story could be known is if someone was there, which is denying the whole notion of it being fiction, mm-hmm. that there is a suspension of disbelief that you go, right, it's as if somehow this knowledge was all transmuted and then shipped. Mm-hmm. But he created this frame narrative. And quite often when people read The Scarlet Letter, they don't complain that there's no possible way that anyone could have known 
all of the ins and outs of the personal moments of all of these different characters. It doesn't occur to us because we accept it's a novel. Yeah. And even though there is a frame narrative firmly establishing that what I find is real, this is a true account of what happened, assembled by whom? We could ask all of those questions of The Scarlet Letter, but we don't because we recognize that it is fiction. But it's the style in which the story is being told. We understand the conceit. We understand that it is framed that way to give it additional weight, to give it additional drama and tension, and to imply this really happened the way that I have uh, depicted it. And I think that's sometimes when I hear the discussions about the narrators in, in the Malazan Book of the Fallen and how the narrative is constructed. We can get very fixated on the small details mm -hmm. and forget about its fiction. And it's not that you just hand wave away any issues that you have with it, but it always has to be taken into account. This isn't real. This was fully created. And understanding that byplay, it, it is part of our suspension of disbelief. It is part of how we immerse ourselves in the mm -hmm. reality. But this very literal lens that people apply going, well, how does the narrator know? And then trying to come up with extraordinarily complex reasons when you go, okay, let's say it is a person. Before we get into any spoilers, let's say it's a person who was a character and they've decided to write the Malazan Book of the Fallen. So they sit down and they recall what they knew, what they heard about from other people. And then they go, right. But I'm missing a whole lot of things. So I'm just going to add in scenes that explain this. In effect, make stuff up that is consistent with how these characters behaved, what I think their motivations were, um, how I think these things linked together in order to tell the version of the story that I know and that I interpret and that I want other people to know. Yeah. What, why is, you know, that, that's a very straightforward way of looking at it. But people go, oh, but. Why then? And, and, and we get very tense because we want everything in, in really neat little tiny packages and boxes where we can just point and go, it's this thing. Mm -hmm. When even when we look at real life, real life is messy and complicated, far more messy and complicated than narrative is. Narrative is almost always much more simplified than real life. <laughs> uh, which I should know before we get, I'm, I, feel, I realize I'm just putting off getting into the spoilers part, but since we brought up narrators, and if someone were to write as a person, I'm currently just wrapped up book two of Kushalt Legacy by Jacqueline Gary, which has a very strong voiced first person narrator in Fedra. Uh, she is the only POV in the entire first trilogy. Uh, and she basically outright tells you that I'm not just going to tell you the story. I'm going to tell you the story that I think, what I think is important. And she goes through her, her life story and then she depicts her like, I'm going to describe this in detail. Of this, I'm going to say little. Of this, I'm not going to say anything at all. You don't need to know this. It's fine. You can just leave it to the imagination. It's whatever. It doesn't matter. And that is, especially since it's a first-person narrative, which it's much more obvious, but these choices, every choice a narrator makes is much more telling about them than the characters we're speaking of. In, say, if someone were to write the Plotten Book of the Fallen, what they choose to depict and how they choose to depict it is much more telling of them and what they want rather than whatever they're depicting. Because, as we said, in... In the conceit, they couldn't have known this. So they're making things up, and how they make these things up is their direct characterization. So why are we trying to reconcile this with, 
yeah, but why would he do that? Because that's the, that's the character. That's what the character, well, the position, I should say, because it's not always a character, as you mentioned, is meant to do. It's They make things up, and that is telling of who they are. So reconcile that, and the book makes sense. The, the other thing is, in making things up, it's that's not the same as lying. Mm-hmm. So, because it could be their genuine understanding, and they're filling in blanks. Yep. And yes, that is making stuff up. But that's not the same as saying someone was six feet tall when they were only five feet tall, where you are deliberately changing something. You're not filling in a blank there. You're actually altering what was known. But one of the like one of the elements that uh, people sometimes forget, if you think of like a, a time that you went to a party with a bunch of friends or you were out in a bar with a bunch of friends and something happened, your recollection of that event the sequence of the events, who started it, who said what, what exactly they said, how they said it, and the person sitting next to you, their recollection, they will overlap, but they are generally not the same. And, you know, this happens all the time because what we notice, we don't always notice everything. Mm-hmm. What we remember, our memories, as much as people like to, to say, oh, you know, I have a great memory, our memories play tricks on us. And we, our brains reorganize the sequence of events. And they even, even things that happened personally to us, let's say it was an event in your life and you're going to tell someone about it. As soon as you start narrating it, you have turned it from a recitation of facts about what happened and you've actually turned it into a story. And as soon as you do that, you start tweaking things. You start moving things around. You start deciding what information someone needs at the moment information they can have later on, you've decided, well, I don't need to discuss all of that backstory, so I'll just gloss over that. There are far too many characters here. I'm going to conflate them all into one character rather than going, well, Bob said that, then Simon said that, then James said that, then you go, why don't I just make it one person who said all of the things? Because that's going to be simpler for this story to get across because essentially all they do are they're they're poking and prodding and, and instigating these events. I don't need 15 people doing that even though that's exactly what happened. I'm just going to simplify it because the major aspect that I want to talk about is how the person who was being poked and prodded calmly resolved things. That's the focus. That's what I want to focus on. It doesn't, it's not really that important which of the the different people said what and in what order. Mm-hmm. The important thing is this person was provoked multiple times by all of these different people, but they were being provoked. And what I want to focus on is how they dealt with it. And so you tweak and change those things to simplify them, to focus on the important part. But you're not lying. Mm-hmm. You're not trying to deceive your audience. You're actually trying to simplify things so that your audience gains greater understanding of what you have deemed the important aspect. And so you know, people could quibble go, but that's not exactly what happened. That's not the truth. That is lying. But all fiction is lies. Okay. It's, it's very pretty lies for the most part. But fiction... Authors are professional liars. They make stuff up for a living. That's that's why we love them and love their works. Can you imagine like a fully reliable narrator? You brought up the CCTV example, which is excellent because they would have to describe everything, how someone looked, what day it was, what time it was, what weather it was, how, what where the place was, what happened, who said, who spoke, who, everything. It, that's going to be, I don't even know, it's going to be like a library tome, a whole library's worth. And it's not enjoyable it's not fun so make your peace with the fact that some things are going to be tweaked 
not just to make a better story, but also because ultimately, like you pointed out, recollection is different. And especially in some certain um, cases, if someone's recollection is the same as everyone else's, something is up. On that note, um, uh, if you'd like to finish, yeah. Uh, well, uh, the, the last point I was going to make on this is about how each individual can perceive things differently. And a very simple example of this. So let's say that you are a, a guy who is six foot four, really muscular, you've trained in martial arts, like you're a big, physical, very capable guy. How you perceive someone who is five foot 11 and slim is going to be in a certain way. You know, they're five foot 11, they're slim, um, they don't have any martial arts training, you know, so they're, they're not threatening. Now imagine you're a five foot one woman and how you would perceive that same five foot 11 guy. Now, in both instances, the, the, the two points of view that you have picked would be describing someone who's five foot 11, male, relatively slim. But if you are five foot one, female, and this person is stepping very close to you, you might feel intimidated that this is aggressive, that this is slightly frightening. If you're six foot four and really solidly built, and this person steps up to you, you're looking down and going, what are you going to do, little puppy? <laughs> you know, the, the feeling of it is entirely different. So if you're relaying that moment, both points of view could say they were five foot 11 and they stepped up. But the shorter point of view might say stepped up aggressively and how they are describing it would be quite frightening. The tone and the atmosphere is going to be one of potentially impending violence. But from the taller point of view, it might be one of amusement or, you know, this person was just stepping up so I could hear them better. There is no, there is no even concept that this could be seen as aggressive in any way, you know, but it's exactly the same act. Now, if you have a CCTV footage of this incident, you would see the facts, but you wouldn't understand how people are interpreting it. Mm -hmm. And it's through that interpretation of the real, that's how we perceive reality. That's how stories are told. Stories very rarely are a recitation of fact, because quite often that's boring. That's a yeah. summary of events. That's not story. Now, there are exceptions to this. And, and that's the problem by talking about all these things with, with generalization is someone go, oh, yes, but... What about so-and-so's work that is done exactly? And you go, yes, but that's the exception to the rule, or that, that shows how the vast majority of things happen. And that's what makes so much of this complex to talk about, because you can't say it is definitively this, because some smart-ass author is going to be out there going, well, I'm going to take that as a challenge. And they do, and they knock it out of the park, and you go, right, well, now that makes my job explaining this harder, <laughs> because this is a brilliant example of why None of this makes any sense. Great. <laughs> Delightful. <laughs> On that cheerful note, I think um would be nice to get into the spoiler section. Uh, and what better way would be than uh, to just outright spoil all of this? Uh, that we're talking like about people and uh, things and abstract concepts and list off how many narrators are present in the modern books. Uh, there's the, I guess, main narrator of the Book of the Fallen in Kamensod. There's Tol the Hound's narrator in Krupp. There's Karkanas' narrator, primary narrator, which is Galan. Depending on interpretation, Karkanas is also re secondarily related to you by Fisher. Depending on interpretation, that's one's a bit tricky. Uh, we asked Steve, and Steve more or less said that Witness also has a narrator, but less of a person and more position. In like, they are part of the story, but not a character within the story necessarily. 
And I'm gonna stop there before I get into psycho theories, but like we have at least four candidates for a narrator in these books, and each one introduces their own layers. Because in Galan slash Fisher and Krupp slash Kamensoft's case, we have two narrators overlaying each other. You also have Troll. Right. Midnight Tides, yeah. <laughs> There's that. So five at the least. Um and as you pointed out, none of these people, conceivably, could know everything that they relate in a given story. And it doesn't matter. We'll get to that in a moment. Um, so, you have made... Uh, what is it, like, Bone Hunters now? I'm not sure. Midnight Tides, Bone Hunters? I think I got up to... I'm up to Midnight Tides. I have to do Bone right. Hunters next. The one right, I'm right. really looking forward to talking about is Reaper's Gale, actually, because there's, there's a very significant point there. Right. Um, Bone Hunters, I'm... I'm I need to have a, a bit more of a think about that before I record it, because I need to structure things roughly. Yeah, I do the stuff off the top of my head, but I do try to think about it beforehand <laughs> so I'm not just staring at a camera and right. rambling. Right, right, yeah. So EP, as, um, um, as I've mentioned, uh, made at least five videos in a series specifically about how Kamensot in, um, influences a reread of The Book of the Fallen. And that's just one guy out of five we mentioned. <laughs> so there's a lot to talk about here. Uh, so please take it away. Well, let's let's start with like a an easy one. So if Kamensod is the narrator of the Book of the Fallen, which the conceit is that this this ten book series in front of us called the Malazan Book of the Fallen is actually one book in an alternate universe or in a different dimension called the Book of the Fallen. That's what Kamensod created. Mm -hmm. How did he create it? And within that, you can have so for Toll the Hounds. Yes, Krupp's voice is the dominant voice of the narration. And we have that frame narrative at the beginning where Krupp says, you know, watch, uh, watch Krupp watch dance. dance. Yeah. And he, he's, he's going to tell this story. But he's not narrating the story to us. He's narrating it in the diegesis. We, we see potentially what he has narrated, but some of it is in Krupp's voice. Mm -hmm. Not all of it is in Krupp's voice. And you realize that's because it is part of the Book of the Fallen. So Kamensod essentially has taken Krupp's narration and gone, Krupp told this story, which fits in this part of my book that I am writing, and I'm going to fill in the blanks. I'm going to fill in the spaces that Krupp didn't talk about. And sometimes maybe Krupp said it that way, and I don't like how Krupp said it, so I'm going to change it. <laughs> um, so it's a bit like if I told you a story about something that happened to me or something that I witnessed, and then you wrote it down. And some of the phrasing you would use, some of the focus that you use, some the order, the structure, all of these things, you might take a lot of it from me. But as you write it, you will make changes, changes that make sense to you. So who's the narrator? You Part of it will be influenced by my voice, but I'm not narrating the text. Mm -hmm. Because if I was narrating the text, well, put it back in Tullahoun's court. If Krupp is narrating the text, how does he narrate the section that he's in? Right? At the start, where he says, watch Krupp dance. Um, who's narrating that? Like, There's a question. Genuine question. Who's the narrator of that section? And then there's, you know, uh, the fact that the prologue proper of Toll the Hounds oh. with uh, the nameless... Oh, okay, I'm going. Am I? Oh, sorry, lady. Yeah. No, no. Uh, yeah. Am I clear? Are we here? Oh, yeah. You're, okay. you're back. I don't know what right. happened. No, no. It's just my turn. It's been shit. Anyway. Uh, what I was saying is before the scene where Krupp dances for Fisher and for Krull, we have the, I suppose, prologue proper of Toll the Hounds, which is before Krupp's overt narration, 
with uh, the meeting between Shadowthrone, Hood, Edgewalker, and Rake, witnessed by these two individuals. Who's narrating that? Yeah, and, and, so on. and yeah. that's the point. So that that you would argue that is all common sod creating these scenes. Mm-hmm. This this is what happened. I'm going to tell you what happened. Now, did he physically witness it? No. Well, how does he know that that's what happened? You go right. How does Sherlock Holmes know when he walks into a crime scene how the crime happened? He didn't witness the crime. He didn't. Well, you clearly you used your left hand to stab them and do this thing. It's like, well, how do you know you weren't there? <laughs> because I can see all of the evidence, and the evidence leads me to this. This must have happened, and it must have happened in this way. He, I, I ne- cannot can never remember the difference between induction and deduction about how it actually works, but. Essentially, looking at the evidence and finding from the the pattern of the evidence what must have occurred, and then giving it shape. And that's Sherlock Holmes isn't making up a story; mm-hmm. he's interpreting the evidence and shaping it so that we we or well Watson can understand it. Because he goes, "Well, Watson, this is what happened." Well, how do you know you weren't there? All you saw was a letter with a a thumbprint on it and a speck of dust over there, and the fact that the the person used to be a soldier working in whatever country. But from all of that, Holmes creates the narrative of what happened. Why can't we apply that same reasoning to what Kamensod does? Kamensod has all of these pieces. And he goes, this is what must have happened. And therefore, I'm going to write it all out. Rather than just, well, there was a bunch of stuff here, which basically means this. That's not a narrative. <laughs> so you have, you have that aspect. And again, all of this gets complicated as soon as you start bringing into the discussion the fact that this is a fantastical secondary world in which magic and divine beings can interact with mortal beings and have powers that are not necessarily disclosed. That there's huge gray area introduced because of that. Um, Sod, we know, has a fragmented body, but each of those fragments has its own consciousness and its own consciousness can interact. And when Kamensod leaves, we know from um, Esamon's book that there, there's one piece of him at least stays behind as an entity. But did all of the rest of them combine and, and go with him? No, in which yeah. case, he is flooded with information from all of their perspectives. And that's not necessarily discussed and delineated and, and laid out on some sort of dissection table for us to pour over slavering at the details. But Kamensod is also a divine entity. Mm-hmm. And this divine entity has these followers, these jade that are, are in the, the jade comments, the jade sides, that have been looking down. So how much have they witnessed? How much have they seen that Kamensod has access to? Uh, we also don't know when Kamensod becomes that defined figure and is leaving, how much he can perceive and understand of the world below him. Because he has gone from being uh, imprisoned into these physical shards into being truly divine again. And it's a different type of divinity to the Malazan gods. He's from a different realm. He's from a different reality. And because of that, that divinity might be different. And we don't know. Um, so that, that complicates all of these matters. But to get back to Tull the Hounds, because it it, it, it's a good example of this. Yeah. Toll the Hounds is a book that occurs in the Book of the Fallen. Kamensod is the narrator of the Book of the Fallen, and he has taken material and used Krupp's voice and Krupp's perspective on what Krupp knew 
for certain sections of it. But Krupp wasn't a coral. And those sections aren't really narrated in Krupp style, are they? Yep. So there's clearly an overarching, what you, okay, to abuse a term slightly, a meta narrator. So Kamen saw it as the meta narrator. But that doesn't mean that every single book uh, can't have different narratorial voices. Mm -hmm. So with, with Midnight Tides, at the end of uh, House of Chains, you know, Troll says, I'm going to tell you my story. And then we have Midnight Tides. So, and the framework of Midnight Tides, this is Troll's story. But if Troll had been telling it, and Kamensod had decided to relate exactly as Troll had explained it, we'd be missing a lot of information. And not only that, it wouldn't fit with the overarching narrative that Kamensod is trying to create for the Malazan book, or for the book of the Fallen. But Troll's story, and what led to Troll being shorn, is necessary information for the reader. So Kamensod goes, well, here's Troll's story that he said that he was going to tell, and I've taken all of those elements and, and how that happened. I've added in things that one piece of me was heavily involved in influencing um, the, with Rulad and how that came to be. But I've added in the context for it without detailing what I saw at, at every moment. I've, I've given you what you needed to know, not everything that happened. But in order to understand how it resolved, and it resolved this way, you know, and it went to Lether, you need to know all about the Letheri. So I'm going to explain this aspect of Letheri culture, and I'm going to do it with the overall message that I'm trying to communicate in the Book of the Fallen. Because imagine that you cut out of Midnight Times everything that Troll couldn't possibly have with. Yeah, that'd be like 20% of the but, book left at most. But when we get to that section at the end, when... Uh, the Edur are in Lethar. And suddenly all of these people appear. You're like, well, who is it? Why are you throwing in these new people at the end? Why are you introducing new characters in the very last section of the book? Why is it important that this person died? Like, why have you just done all of this? So you would look at that and go, well, I need to go back in time a little bit and explain who these characters are who turn up at the end. And this is where we get into omniscience. Mm. So an omniscient narrator knows everything that happened in the story. They know how the story, page one, when you start a story, if it is an omniscient narrator, on page one, the narrator already knows how the story is going to end. They, they know what all the different characters are thinking. Mm -hmm. They know what happened. So from page one, that narrator, if they so choose, could say, um, he walked into the room not knowing that today was the day that was going to change his life forever. That is this big red flag that this is an omniscient narrator because the narrator knows at that point future events, future events within the diegesis, future events for the character. But for the narrator, they aren't future events. They are known sort of facts. They are known history. They are these, this is what has happened. And they're relaying it to you at a different point. So uh, Robin Hobbs, Farseer, if you think in the very, very first book, Assassin's Apprentice, Fitz is writing or attempting to write a history of the six duchies and then starts reminiscing about his childhood. And he's going to tell the reader what happened to him as a kid, which means for the purposes of that story, Fitz is a, an omniscient narrator. He is at a point in time, he is going to tell you everything that happened. And he's going to tell you what other characters thought or how they acted and why they acted that way. And he's going to tell it from that perspective. So he knows for that story, he is technically omniscient, but 
Fitz is a homodiegetic narrator. This is a story about his own life. Mm -hmm. And we know that his position is subjective. And we know that he does not possess all the facts because it has been situated within the diegesis. So he's not actually fully omniscient. He will interpret the facts subjectively. And so he's an unreliable narrator in terms of the subjectivity that he is applying. Even though at that moment in time when he is telling us what is going on and what happened, and therefore he knows, you know, little did I know when I first met, what was the name of the dog, the puppy, the first puppy? To help you. But little did I know, this was the ba- this was when I discovered this thing. Like Fitz could at that moment say that because the position of knowledge that he has at the beginning of the narrative is he has already lived this. And so he has fully omniscient knowledge of the story that he is telling, even though the narrative perspective of that is subjective, mm-hmm. unreliable narration with a semi-omniscient narrator. Yeah, this is how it happened. Trust me. That's what matters. And are you going to dispute him? I mean, you can, you probably should, but at some point it just breaks down because you don't have any other version of events. But that doesn't mean you should doubt everything you read in the text. And, and, and well, this is the thing about unreliable narration. Unreliable narration is, is usually split into two different things that we call unreliable. One is trustworthiness. Is this person going to lie to me? Severian in Book of the New Sun lies outrageously. Lies to other people, lies to the reader, lies to himself. Severian's perception of reality is highly mutable, but Wolf, as the writer, ensures that there are moments and things in the text that show that Severian is lying, that are the almost these asides to the reader. Don't trust what Severian is saying. He is telling you these things. He is telling you these things for a specific purpose because of his psychology, because of how he feels about it. Maybe he's forgotten and he's just making stuff up, but you cannot trust what Severian is saying. And part of the joy of reading that is looking at what Severian says and thinking about what actually happened or what Severian might have meant or what he's, he's covering up. It's playing with those two different levels. Mm-hmm. And that is an untrustworthy unreliable narration. And then you have a subjective unreliable narration. And we get this in a lot of first-person narratives. Uh, Dresden Files is a great example of this. Harry Dresden, first part, he does not lie to the reader. You can trust what he is saying, but we are always aware he does not have the full fact. Yeah, the building was on fire. He walks into it wasn't my fault. Yeah, but he walks into a room and he sees... Um, a white court vampire. And he's like, ah, oh, that evil vampire. Later on, walks into a room, sees that white court vampire. Hey, how's it going? Because now they're friends. You go, His perception of that person has shifted. Mm-hmm. If he was omniscient, he would have known from the beginning. That he was a friend. But so one of the, one of the things there is his perception of events is subjective. It's flawed. It is not fully complete. He does not have all of the facts. He doesn't know what is going to happen. We have the conceit that we are following through with his point of knowledge at that time. And I did a video where I was pointing to these different types of narration. And you can look at the opening scene of the very first Dresden Files book. And he picked up the phone and said, hello. Uh, And then this person responds. Later on, he finds out that uh, a couple of pages later that that wasn't her real name. So an omniscient narrator could have said, um, she said her name was Susan. 
that was clearly not her real name. Her real name was actually this and blah, 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 blah. Because the omniscient narrator knows the events in the future of the character. But Dresden doesn't. Dresden is not written with that perspective. Mm -hmm. But Dresden often operates, the character Harry Dresden often operates on his interpretation and level of knowledge at the time, which is sometimes mistaken. He can be fooled. If he can be fooled, it's not objective. It is subjective. And it's limited by his perception. So he, again, is a type of unreliable narrator. But we can trust what he says. Like He is not lying to us when he, he says these things. Mm -hmm. This is what he honestly believes. But when we use the term unreliable, we sometimes, A, conflict the level of trust that we can have and the, whether or not it's subjective. But also, again, we get rooted in the idea that this is limited to a particular person because it's the simplest, most straightforward way of talking about narration and narrators to think of it as a person. But again, narrative perspective can be, when you talk about narrator, it's about a point of view, not necessarily a person. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. Oh, oh yeah. you're back again. I'm back, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I'm, as you go on, I'm making connections in my head about books I recently read. Um, I mentioned already Kushal. Uh, and how that relates to Malazan, and also the book of the New Sound, which you brought up, and I brought up, and I'm planning to read very soon. And... I am absolutely guilty of conflating these terms, um, but also I think what we, how do I put this? Um, we are ultimately in agreement, which is I think good for me, <laughs> that lies by omission and lies by, well, or misinterpreting a situation because you don't have the full facts are very different things, which is nice because it relates to a lot in a moment, and how a narrator is framed and how they act in within the story and how trustworthy they are because Galan's an interesting case which is the next one I want to get to because he tells you he is going to lie to you he says what I do not recall I shall invent he's telling you that this is not a history this is not the story this is a tale this is my tale this is my creation my memory my creation I am not here I don't exist in this tale I well, he, he does but he never appears on page, only in the reminiscence of other characters, or by tooting his own horn about how good his poems are, or by the recollections of other characters when he was just on page, but just now left. And there is this liminal space of, do you trust him enough to think that, yeah, he is probably going to lie, and what part of this can I trust? And similar to Severian, who, well, unlike Gallant, doesn't know he's going to lie to you, um, there is this very interesting game, I suppose, of trying to figure out what Galan is trying to tell you by painting these events in this way. Because he is honest and forthcoming about it, but he doesn't tell you where he's making things up. So... Yeah, but remember that Carcanus is about a civil war. Yeah. Right? It, the Carcanus trilogy is focused on this civil war in the, the, um, the Teeth Nation. Now, think to the American Civil War. If your narrator was a soldier in the Confederacy, or your a narrator was a soldier in the Union, would their recollection of a battle be the same? Mm -hmm. Would they frame it in the same way? Would they characterize the soldiers on the other side the same way? That Galan sets out, as a poet, I'm going to tell you what happened, mm -hmm. but I don't have a perfect memory. And even then, even if I had a perfect memory, you'd all of those details are complexities that maybe we don't need. What I want to tell you is the essential truth 
of what happened. And I'm going to tell it in the form of a narrative. So I'm going to streamline things. I'm going to emphasize certain things. I'm going to ignore other things. That I think we sometimes forget that our current approach to a lot of history of here is a this is what happened. Here is this thing. Here is this thing. We we can we can prove this. That's not always how histories were written. Mm-hmm. It, it it's a relatively modern way of approaching history. That quite often histories were written with huge assumptions being made, cultural perspectives being taken into account, or even political or cultural ideologies being used to reframe and reshape what happened in history to bolster that position for the historian or what the historian was trying to do. That was a very common approach to the writing of history. So when Galan says to another storyteller, I will tell you this story. And remember, Blaine Galan is a poet. So he is going to frame things poetically. He's going to add symbolism. And then who is the actual narrator of Carcanus? Because is it Fisher? Because Fisher is the one saying, I spoke to Galan about this. Galan told me the story. And here you go. That Fisher could actually be taking Galan's story and then reshaping it into a prose narrative. In which case, the level of unreliability, it's it's less about what is factually true and more about what is emotionally true or what is a clean or powerful way to represent the inner core of what happened um, rather than giving you a list of, well, he walked from this place to this place. It took two weeks and in that time he ate these things, then he met that person and None of that's relevant. Let's just skip all that. Well, how did he get there so quickly? You're like, I, I didn't want to spend time saying but it was a whole two weeks. I just moved the events around to streamline it so that things actually, you know, moved along at a decent pace because I'm trying to entertain my reader as well as educate. So the intentionality behind it, the intentionality of this frame. Now, we could talk about Erickson's reason for doing this, which allows him to step aside from certain established facts within the world. Because being tied down to things that 30 years ago, he and Esselmont were going, oh, we'll do this thing, we'll do that thing. And now in writing this book, he goes, but I want to do something slightly different. And I don't want to be tied down specifically to one throwaway line that I never thought about in book three or book four of that series. I, I actually want to develop this. And this is the story that I want to tell. And so by setting up this level of unreliable narration. It is a, not a cheat, but it is a way to get around having to adhere to a very strict timeline. And it's something obviously we see both in Erickson and Esselmont in Novels of the Malazan Empire and in the Malazan Book of the Fallen. Mm-hmm. It's not that the timeline doesn't okay. matter, but the timeline is not the deciding factor of things because unreliable narration allows for facts and timelines and events to be fudged and shifted and conflated and stretched out. And that's the essence of this is not the thing that happened. This is a story of the thing that happened. Mm-hmm. Which, since we brought this up, uh, I think a little sign of Galan's storytelling is he's very streamlined, but he also doesn't rely very much on dates. Things happen. When? In the fall of light, it's winter. When in winter? Don't know. Does it matter? No. It just... The season of war is approaching. When? Two months, three months, four, five, six, doesn't matter. It's coming. It will be soon. 
they don't even get there in the end because, well, the Norwegian March is before spring, the proper season of war begins. But that wouldn't make a difference because the events that occur probably occur more than one season. Like from Fall of Light, chapter one, with the battle of um, with the Wardens to the very end with the merge, probably takes place over more than just a few months. But that doesn't matter because winter is a much more important setting and atmosphere that needs to be maintained for the story to work. So adhering to a very strict timeline of this needs to happen in one season. Well, shit. Um, <laughs> so, but again, the the use of pathetic the use of pathetic fallacy. So, yeah, like the the very tired cliche of you know someone gets really devastating tragic news and they go and they sit outside and it's gray skies and it's raining and they're crying in the rain because the weather is matching their mood and the lighting matches their mood. That's a pathetic fallacy. Um, or well. It's, Sympathetic would be a way that modern people would understand, where there is sympathy between the external and the internal. So when when someone says, "Oh, like the season of war is coming," it's like, well, you don't need to know if it's coming on Tuesday or Wednesday. <laughs> that is irrelevant because the major factor is that they are gearing up for war. That's where everyone is going. When exactly does it happen? Are you trying to work out the logistics for supplying the army? No. Then why do you need to know? But and I get for certain readers. That is an area of fascination. And you go, yeah, that's fine. But that's that's personal to you and, and your reading and the, the, the people who have that interest. But for the purposes of the story, war brewing and being imminent is the important information, not if it's imminent in one week, in two weeks, in two months. Knowing that they are building up, that it's the tension, the atmosphere, why people are acting a certain way, why they are looking in a certain direction, why they think about the things that the way that they do. That's the important element. If it was a story about, like, think of the chain of dogs. Do we really worry very much about, well, what happened in that stretch? How many, how, where were they getting the supplies for that point? How much, how much was going on there? You go, no, I just need to know they were traveling and they were running out of supplies. For the vast majority of what the storytelling is, it's emphasizing the deprivation and the isolation. These are the big elements. We have to, those things need to be emphasized because that's the important aspect. The other things are not irrelevant, but in comparison to the weight, focus, and, and import that the narrative is placing on the other elements, in comparison, they are minor at best and they, they aren't the focus. If I, um, and again, talking about this, to give a, a simple analogy, you want to get a car. You want to get a brand new car. So you have your price point and you want, you might have the number of seats, trunk space, or, you know, the space in the boot for carrying luggage, uh, fuel economy. Like you go through and you prioritize your list about all of the, the really important things. And then it's right. Well, the interior has either dark gray charcoal or black in uh, seat covers. You know, I'm not spending a lot of time thinking about that because that's irrelevant. The major thing that I need to focus on is does it do all of the other things? But, and for some people, they go, yeah, but the interior of the car is really, really important. <laughs> but for a lot of us, you go, but I'll put up with the interior of the car not being exactly what I wanted as long as the important things are all there, like the mileage and the cruising speed and the essential safety features and blah, 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 blah. You create a priority list and it's, oh, well, this has the perfect interior, but only gets 10 miles to a gallon. 
You're like, oh, yes, but it has the perfect interior. That's really important to me. You know, at 10 miles a gallon, it's not as important. It, it's actually less important. Mm-hmm. So again, we, we sometimes forget about this prioritization of the information within a text and that no author and no narrator will give you every single thing that you personally, individually might want or be interested. They, they cannot do that. It, narrative would become unwieldy. Mm-hmm. And very few texts, very few narratives are created solely with you personally in mind. Unless you are friends with an author who is writing a story specifically for you, you are part of a general readership. And therefore, we can talk about the things that we like and we dislike that we we wanted more of or wanted less of because, you know, that's who we are. But we're part of a general readership. And if we're going to be evaluating whether something is good or bad, we have to take that readership into consideration. We are not the only reader. Mm-hmm. We can talk definitively about how we felt because we know that. But we aren't the only reader. And therefore, it has to be placed in that context. And if we personally have some idiosyncratic uh, criteria that we are applying, why would anyone, when they are creating a story, think that those three points that you listed as really, really important are the most important? Why would anyone think that? Those are like, look at the vast majority of people who read. That's not what they're focused on. Yes, but it's what I'm focused on. Okay. And so it didn't do those things. You didn't like those things. But that's, that's not necessarily the author or the book's fault. That's You have a specific set of things that you wanted. The book didn't do that, but the book didn't promise to do that. Mm-hmm. The author didn't promise to do those things. Um, and, you know, it's it's always a tension and a balance between those two points. Right. I want to run a bit with a car analogy, actually. Uh, say, for instance, you have a car salesman who wants to sell you a, a specific car, and he goes, oh, you know, it's a, it's a sedan, it's a, a dark gray sedan, it has uh, four wheels, it's, it's nice, but it has a very nice interior. You know, the, the seats are made of supple leather, uh, dark gray of like some random grayscale, I don't know exactly the terms, and they feel very smooth to the touch, and they last for like this many years, and then you sort of get suspicious, because you don't, you haven't even seen the car, you don't know how the car looks, you have a vague idea of how the car looks by the general description, and then they're honing in on a very, very specific detail that you otherwise wouldn't need to know about. Uh, case in point, uh, if you read the Memories of Ice prologue, it has two hyper-specific dates, like 299,784 years before Burns sleep, the 33rd Jagged War, and then like, Power rolls around, and he's like, 119,896 years before Burns sleep, three years after the fall of the Crippled God, and like, this is before Kaminsword even came to the world. How do you have access to such specific dates? And he doesn't. Not just because he can't, but because it doesn't matter. Because these dates, in and of themselves, aren't terribly important. Because what's like the difference between 100,000 years ago and 300,000 years ago, when you weren't around, he wasn't around, nobody was around? It's yet another clue, and I think you have talked about this extensively. It, the absurdity of how specific these dates are, are meant to clue you in that this is not fact. This is legend. This is myth. This is artifice, even within the text. It's it's nuts, you know. Like yeah, just one hundred and twenty thousand years ago, it was Tuesday, twelve a.m., and then like three elder gods rolled around and like cursed this dude who sits up on a throne made of bones, twirling his mustache. Like hmm, yes. Like what the fuck? I mean, yeah, I mean, could take that seriously. But that moment, but that moment with Kalor, where the cripple god was called down, 
two continents continents are devastated with these comets coming down, fire raining out, destroying everything. And the fire starting the continent. They rage across. People are dying. They, everything is devastated. And Calor goes, you know what? Where's my glue gun? I'm going to make this throne of bones. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm going to get out my DIY set. I'm going to collect up all of these bones, clean them all off, glue them all together, arrange them. And then I'm going to sit down because, oh, look, three elder gods are rocking up. Right. We could look at it as very literal as, oh, yeah, yes, that's exactly what Kalor did. Or we could look at it and go, yeah, it's a myth. It's an exaggeration that this is, he is, the way that it's all framed, he's sitting on a throne of bones because his kingdom is ash. He is ruling over a land of essentially the dead, that everyone, almost everyone is dead. And, and that, that is what his kingdom is. It has been reduced to these bones. And then it's like, well, how did Kalor get the magic to curse them back. And it's like, it's a myth. He receives three curses, therefore he curses each of them back once. You know, it's, and it ties into the fall of each of these elder gods. It's almost like someone who knew how the story was going to end and how things were played out would retrospectively go back and go, this is actually a great way to explain who Kalor is, who these people are, what happens to them, that it plays with that. And I know for some people that's not satisfying because they want it to be the real thing. But when we think of the myth of Icarus flying too close to the sun, do we go, oh yeah, because he just strapped these wings and then flapped them because the human body is going to be able to do that. And by flapping, fly high enough up into the air that the, the sun's beams are going to melt the wax and the... Really? That's what you're taking away from the story of Icarus. And applying that sort of realist lens to everything. You know, some stories are written that way. That, that's not the problem. Even some fantasy stories are written to be perceived and understood that way. But a lot of myths and legends and these exaggerated stories are not written that way. And to try and read them that way means that we misunderstand them. We, we, uh, Snow White, the story of Snow White, and at the end, in order to punish the evil stepmother, they heat up iron shoes and clasp them to her feet, or clamp them to her feet. So these red hot shoes are burning her feet, and so she dances to death. Yeah. Right? Do you think that actually happened? No. <laughs> it was it was a poetic end to the story, and obviously one that Disney went, oh well, that's a bit too gruesome and graphic for the kids. Like I'm going to absolutely change that. Um, the fact that Snow White is a, what is she, seven, eight years old? And this prince is riding by and he sees her in the glass coffin and goes, oh yeah, I will buy this dead girl's body and casket off these dwarves to put in my palace. Uh, what? This, the, there is no psychological realism there. And then as his servants lift Snow White's casket, they jostle it. The poisoned apple piece pops out of her mouth and she wakes up. You go, there is no true love's kiss. There is no um, the prince and, and Snow White were destined to fall in love. She's a young girl. He's a prince with servants riding by who wanted her body for some reason, which we don't want to go into. But there was no true love's kiss to wake her up. That was all a Disney invention. And you go, well, what's more real? What's more true? And it's all about 
the story that is being told, the things that are being emphasized, how the storyteller and the narrator, how the storyteller creates a narrator to narrate something in a style to emphasize certain points. And that changes, it can be changes to the facts, it can reorder things, all to emphasize different elements. And even though a lot of the basic facts are the same, it changes how we interpret the story. And it's why we can read fantasy novels that have very similar characters and events and, and structures, but there are enough changes to it that emphasize different aspects that they feel quite different. You, you look at Eye of the World by Robert Jordan, mm -hmm. and then look at The Fellowship of the Ring uh, by J.R.R. Tolkien. Jordan takes huge amounts from The Fellowship of the Ring. Those events and the sequence of the events and even some of the characters you can see are, in some respects, reskinned versions of Tolkien. But what Jordan does with the rest of the series, the element that brings in the unique things that he drew upon, what he, he, he takes his series in a different direction in, in a number of different ways. So there's familiarity, especially with the first book, but there were enough differences that as he builds on that, they diverge further and further and further, which is fine. You can see a lot of that in Brooks, uh, Terry Brooks' Sword of Shannara, that again, it's taking a lot of very, very similar elements and facts and, and things, reskinning them. And we all look at it and go, hmm, someone read The Lord of the Rings. <laughs> but there are enough surface level details that, yeah, there are differences. And then again, as those books progress, as they change, as, as the series goes on, they become more wildly divergent from that initial inspiration and source. So, and all of this is kind of a long-winded way of referring back to like even Galan and saying he could take the facts, but how he chooses to relay them and then how Fisher chooses to record them. Mm -hmm. That's two levels of ambiguity being applied to it. And we personally may prefer, no, I want to know exactly what happened, but that's not what the story is promising. And it is upfront and honest from the prologue this is not the fact of what happened. It is a narrative version of what happened. If we read uh, historical fiction about Caesar's life, liberties will be taken with the sequence and order of things. Uh, characters will be conflated. Uh, some events will be tweaked. Some will be omitted. Some will be made much bigger and, and more dramatic to fit with the structure and the pacing and all of these sorts of things. We accept that in historical fiction. Because historical fiction is not the same as history. Um, you know, they, they are functioning in two different ways. Yeah. To get a bit more specific, I suppose, within the context of... Uh... Oh, I seem to have lost you. Again. Yeah, yeah. Okay. One sec. Oh. Hello? Sorry, Lee. You're, you're frozen and I'm yeah, only yeah. getting bits and pieces of what you were saying. Hello? Yeah. Hello? Yeah, okay. Uh, so to wrap back into um, Galan, because we touched on a few things. Uh, Cameron's not a bit less guilty of this, but I think, especially with Galan, since he is a poet and he takes a lot of poetic license with how he portrays things. You said earlier that Karakanas is a story about a civil war, which it absolutely is. And in the grand scheme of things, that tracks. But in the small character moments and how things are portrayed, it's very different. Take chapter one of Hall of Light, right? You have three chief POVs. You have um, Renard, Georgia chapter off and ends it. Uh, you have Captain Haverall, which is our only POV that's functionally within the battle. But even then, he's not fighting in the traditional sense. What he's seeing is 
essentially he is killing his own beloved partner who dumped him again and again and again. And even if that's what is what's happening in his mind, the way it's portrayed is not about the battle. It's not about who he's killing. It's love is dying on this battlefield. People are dying. Dignity, honor, chivalry, all of these things are dying on this battlefield. And that's personified by this guy who is dead at the end of this, um, killing his beloved again and again. You have Renar who witnesses a murder. Uh, she has just come out of her tent. Like, if I could look, and the framing is like, if she could look beyond this hill, she would see a very similar formation on the other side because that relates to how she thinks about these things because of how her mother died. Like, she was once on this battlefield and did she see who would kill her or was she just like any other fool in her company? And then she witnesses a murder of some girl being like attacked as a joke by some boy with a with um with a stone or something and he just chases him across the hill down into the battlefield brutalizes the kid and then walks away like nothing happened and then she like when the battle concludes and Renard we got back to Renard's POV she's looking at the kid the the girl who's like 12 and has brutalized another kid walking around regal as a queen the battle and all the people who die don't immediately matter. They matter later when we get to characters who are like connected to them, like Tulas or Farrer or a whole lot of other Warden-adjacent characters. But in the moment, the battle doesn't matter. What Elgas did and what Ryle did and what Sander did or didn't do, that doesn't matter because Galan wants to show you the metaphor of the battle. And that's much more personified in the last chapters with Brennick and um, Henerald who, rather than showing you the battle immediately, yeah. it plays out with toy soldiers. And then he has Rise Harat relate the battle to you as it would have happened, in his opinion, maybe. <laughs> so the events themselves, even in the world, don't matter because there's a much bigger point at play that Galan wants to show by relating these historical, quasi-historical events. He is, as you said... <laughs> painting even within his characters and FOD with Karaspola and whatever um, which I've gotten to in my own series uh, in Fortune Dark and For Fall of Light a lot more with both Renar and Raisarat and a lot of other characters how they perceive the important characters like how they think of Draconis how they think of Anamander how they think of Orisander because yeah. who these characters are doesn't matter how the other characters perceive them and how that paints them is what matters so, so I, 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 kind of, I, I kind of agree, but I also I, I disagree with very, very slightly with yeah. how you phrase it from there. Because you said the events don't matter and the characters don't matter. And then you go, no, 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 the events do matter. Mm -hmm. But it's not about a recitation of the factual movement. Yeah, exactly. In order to understand the event, understanding the emotional truth of the event, understanding what the event means, that's what Galan is trying to get across. So, it's it's precisely because the events matter. do matter yeah. that he has chosen and and Fisher has chosen to focus on these things because you go right there's a civil war two sides are fighting do you understand the importance of that oh yeah well it's two sides are fighting and then this battle is going to happen you go yeah but do you know what that means it's brother killing brother it's sister killing sister it's families being torn apart how can I how can I communicate what a civil war does to the soul, to the people, why it is like this. How can I communicate that if I just describe the action on the battlefield, the action on the battle ocean and the importance of what it signifies? And so it is precisely because the events matter that 
there is this focus on the human impact on these symbolic and metaphorical representations of them because it allows us to understand the depth of meaning to things mm -hmm. the full meaning of things and not be distracted by surface level minutiae oh that flank moved that way and then that person did that thing you're like that is description of action that's not meaning and the thing is again you know depending on how it's told how it, there are all these ways that you can give meaning to it but that wasn't the choice made here and as you said about these characters it's it's not so much i am going to tell you what and who and the thing about the character i'm going to show you how other people perceive it because to understand who this character is you have to understand how other people perceive them because it's their impact in the world that is the thing it's not who they think they are it's how other people view them view what they do how they are impacted by these decisions that these few people are making and quite often by taking that external view of character it leaves a level of ambiguity because do we really care what their specific intentions are because we're far more interested in the impact of their decisions not in the intention behind the decision because this is about this rift in a society that leads to the sundering of a race to a culture and we get a balance between seeing inside certain people's heads and seeing other people externally it's all balanced so that we get the personal uh, sort of individual human well taste story um we get that plus we get the grander scale the larger scale the more dramatic scale we get why these we find out why battles are happening because the battle in and of itself why it happens and who won and what the ramifications are are generally more important than the actual battle itself because it's going to decide something one way or another so again it's a, it's a choice in story it's a choice in style of narration mm -hmm. to focus on those elements and you know think of the charge of the light brigade um very famous poem happened about an order given during a battle do we look at that and go oh yeah i mean this is exactly the order they were given and this is the route that they took and and these are the names of the different soldiers and this is exactly what I, you know no from the poem the poem is a dramatization a, a poetic form of this incident and it is told in a way with a rhythm and a style and with the the rhyme and the impact of the words that we understand this horror that is visited this bumbling order that led to these deaths but it doesn't give us the context of the battle in which it happened it's a criticism of the orders being given and you know in the modern day quite a lot of people look at it and go it's a criticism of the idiots who blindly followed orders even though they knew they were wrong and stupid and would result in senseless death to them but the charge of the light brigade we don't look at that and go well that's just not factually accurate <laughs> but we understand the essence that it was trying to convey which uh, uh conveniently brings me to the point i wanted to make earlier but i forgot completely uh and you rightfully pointed out that i a bit abusing using words but chapter 1 doesn't just begin with renar it begins with a sort of prelude except not exactly where galan opens and goes poets lust for blood and like he basically berates uh individuals who would glorify in such things and he 
opens up with metaphor, you know, like see something glorious in this um in the strut of failed men and women. And then Fisher and Draft are like, no, 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 they don't no, they don't get that. Um wait, no, they don't? Okay, um like he scratches his head a little and he goes, So shall I offer up the reek of shit and piss, the screams for loved ones far away? Do you want that? Is that what you want? Do you want me to describe exactly what happens in a battlefield in a civil war in the most literal of sense? I could do that. I could. It's horrifying. It's horrible. It'll get the point across. Yeah, but that's not the story I want to tell. In the same sense, dramatizations for the Chargers Light Brigade, can you imagine a unit of light cavalry charging a fully attributed and a fully ready, fortified artillery brigade? It's going to be a massacre. There's not going to be like anything left, but you don't want that. It's much more important that the theme and the point is gotten across than the shock value of the sheer horror of it by telling you, so he cut down this guy, and then he cut down that guy, and then chopped off this guy's arm, and then this guy's throat. No, he's cutting down his loved one, and he's weeping all the goddamn time while doing it. It's, as you said, it's narrative. It's not fact. Yeah, because even when we think of, the as he was killing these people, and he was seeing his loved ones, was he actually doing that? Or is that just an entire invention about the horror and devastation that is wrought the the terrible nature of a civil war where you are cutting down not just other people like you but people in your own society the war itself is terrible a lot of sides are arbitrary in the first place uh, and they are performed for for various reasons and geopolitical stuff going on uh, but the the taking of human life for any of these reasons is always going to be terrible. But it seems almost worse when it's within your own group, killing your own people, that these are our, our brothers and sisters and, and husbands and wives and, and children, that, that our group is our family. And a civil war is part of the family killing the other part of the family. They, and to get that across, to, to understand that, it is such a wonderfully evocative. So it works as a fairly literal description of this one character going through and this is what he's saying. But because of that overlaying of that symbolic meaning, suddenly the, the emotional impact of it goes to what a civil war actually is, goes to all of those elements. And to me, at least, becomes far more powerful mm -hmm. and far more vivid and far more vicious and far more emotive than... The, the simple, oh, and uh, this action sequence where these things happened. And no, don't get me wrong, like action sequences can be great, but there is something to that overlaying of the thing that happened with symbolic and connecting it to, to a deeper resonance and, and, and emotion that you can do in fiction that you can't really do in a document, that you can't do in a history. Fiction is there to evoke these these feelings and and this sense in the reader it's not about just telling you what happened and so it's it's always a balance fiction is art and creating those effects in the the reader in the the narrative hugely important aspect of all of this absolutely i wish to take one more page of a completely random aside um i don't know if you're familiar with stage combat you know the fake fighting in one scene yeah. and one of the main aspects of it is that a battle scene or a fight scene is never on its own for its own sake. Take, say, the charge of the Rohirrim, right, in uh, Return of the King. You don't just zoom out to see two armies clashing. You have 
theater and they're screaming death all along the line, right? And then you zoom in the two characters, which you know very well because you've been with them through, other, through the other movies. Not every second nameless extra that is also doing the exact same thing. It looks cool when you zoom out and it clashes and, like, it, it's really cool. It's great. It's awesome cinematography, but it wouldn't work if you didn't have someone to anchor that down. Be it that Theoden, be that yeah. Eowyn, whoever that is. Or even, like, the orc who is giving um, orders on the other side. So, especially in such battle scenes where it's a nameless guy or a whole bunch of nameless people fighting a whole bunch of other nameless people, there is always the risk that meaning and theme will be lost if you don't anchor that down somehow. So just throwing out, like, so here, these people died. Here, have just a lot of violence, a lot of it, just tons of death, viscera, gore. Okay, great. Some people are into that. Just, there's, eventually, this feels like eye candy, both in like visual media yeah. and in books. It, it's, quite often, it's chewing gum for the eyes. Yeah. Uh, particularly in internet. So if you think in... What, it was in one of the Star Wars prequels. You have Obi-Wan Kenobi and Anakin, and they're flying through this battle. And it keeps jumping into their little cockpit, but, and then jumping out. And then there's so much of all over the screen. No, it could be, like, I'm just old. I can't follow that. It's just visual noise. And, you know, ships are blowing up. And I go, like, well, I don't care. I don't know who, who was on that. And it's already moved on. I, I, was that a good guy? Was it a bad guy? Like, which, which side was it on? I don't know who any of these people are. And Anakin and, and Obi-Wan are, are going through their, their little tete-a-tete. You go, but there's no tension there because this is the start of the movie. I know that this, I, I know there's an entire film here. Therefore, there's no tension about, are they going to survive this? And when the droids land, you're like, so it's just, it's empty action for action's sake. Mm-hmm. If you look at Iron Man 3, the ending of Iron Man 3, where... Iron Man is jumping from suit to suit and trying to get into a suit, and the suits are fighting the glowing people, the the extremist soldiers. We don't know who any of them are. Like none of these are characters. It's just glowing people fighting CGI robots. So it's it's again empty action and things blowing up and suits being destroyed and then people being blasted. You and it it's exciting, but it's empty action. And it really whereas Tony versus Killian that personifies the Mm -hmm. fight suddenly there are stakes here suddenly we are connected to it and you know when when we talk about stage combat um a lot of stage combat is set up where is the camera what is the camera showing because this is what we're selling to the audience because of course it's not real combat and also stage combat and the, the fake fighting is to tell a story about someone pressing the advantage and then being taken back that a story is told in the choreography exactly. that it's it's meant to communicate and support the narrative that it is situated in. But sometimes you, you see critiques of stage cut where a combat in a film or something, they go, well, that's not the most efficient way to kill someone. And you go, yeah, I know. It's a TV show. It's a film. Like it, it, that, they're not, it, it, It's not meant to be about the most efficient way to kill people. Or, you know, that's not how you would hold a sword. Yeah. Well, it is if you're just messing around and you are so confident that you're so much better than all of the other people. You go, I, I'm going to do this because it's slightly disrespectful or it'll look cool on camera. Yeah. We don't watch The Princess Bride where they are fencing. And it's, well, I have something to confess. You know, I am not left-handed. <laughs> and it's, well, I have something to confess. I am not. You know, well, if, if it was all fed, why weren't they using their their stronger hand from the beginning. Well, they shouldn't have done that. If it was a fair fight, Inigo would never have let him climb up. He just takes the rope, cuts the rope. He's like, Wesley's dead. End of movie. 
but it's not about that. It's not the kind of story this is. Yeah, and it's again, it's about narrative. It's about story, and story is not just the most um, efficient, bare bones. This is the thing that happened, and we have to move from A to B as or A to Z as quickly as possible. No, but character, character moments, uh, symbolism, metaphor, uh, the depth, meaning, all of these things, tone, atmosphere, those are all aspects of narrative. It's not just about the facts. It's not just about moving through it as quickly and as efficiently. It's about the efficient creation of the requisite uh, impact in your audience. Yeah. Les, do you have anything more to add? I believe I'm more or less done. Uh, because this has already gone long enough, and I could go on for longer, uh, because if we haven't made it enough, obvious enough already, there's a lot to talk about with narration with regards to Malazan, and uh, I don't wish to exhaust future topics with Mr. Mr. Raping, so um, do you have anything more to add, perchance? The, the only thing that I would add is thank you so much for for yeah. hosting this and, and recording this. Like, I ramble about this. Um, I ramble about all of this stuff all the time because I love it. It, it's fun and it's interesting and not all narratives conform to very simple straightforward applications of the rules yeah um with uh, you could add in as much cynicism snideness and sarcasm over the pronunciation of the word rules there that you want <laughs> but and it's not that you just completely disregard all of these. it's always a balance and a tension and if it doesn't work for you then that is is fine if you prefer the other thing then that is all absolutely fine it's absolutely valid it's, it's not saying you must do these things but in how it has been done particularly with the malazan work it adds a dimension to the narrative that i enjoy and that, that's one of the reasons why i like talking about it because it's not simple it's not straightforward because we didn't even get into the diegetic levels and yeah um, hetero and 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 homodiegetic narrators and like there are all of these other aspects of it that we can start digging up and you know giving some examples but it's a fascinating complex wonderful area of discussion where there isn't a single right answer but we can make compelling arguments based Mm -hmm. on how we've prioritized certain information and the criteria we've used to select so thank you very much for for this opportunity it's been wonderful thank, thank you. you for being here it has been a wonderful learning opportunity and um i've learned that i've been using a few terms wrong the more more than it, it's i also experienced this with steve it's a delight to hear someone who genuinely loves what they're doing just talk about it for hours i'm just gonna hear listen just i don't mind you can go on for hours i'll be here i'll be listening it's it's a delight and thank you very much for actually making this a reality uh Full disclosure, this was all AB's idea. He approached me. Uh, I would not have done so, even though I had it has been on the plans for like months now. But um, it's well, on the one hand, life got in the way. Um, on the other hand, we had other projects we wanted to finish, and it never got we never got around to it. So AB reached out, and here we are, and it has been an absolute delight. I hope to have you again, uh, hopefully with my co host. But until then, thank you very much. And Thank you, gentlemen and ladies, for watching, and uh, we'll see you next time, whenever next time may be. Thank you, AB. Thank you.